Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, Generative AI and Security with returning guest, Dr. Jeffrey Lancaster. Jeffrey, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again, Darren. All right, so Jeffrey, this is what our fifth time talking specifically. Yeah, it sounds like it. And this is uh, this is episode ten or eleven in our series of generative AI and embracing generative AI, uh, which is great. Uh, we're taking a little different turn than we have in the past. Uh, today, we're going to talk about security. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. So, and I I, I kind of have a feeling in the future, Gen AIs are going to be fighting each other in a cyber war around cybersecurity. Do you see something crazy like that happening or <laughs> it reminds me of good gen AI and bad gen AI fighting with each other? I don't what's gonna happen? I mean the I, I don't see these necessarily as being um the autonomous entities that are going to be fighting each other. The it may be one of the algorithms that enables things to do battle. But I think if, you know, we take that step back and we kind of say, okay, these are things that are creating and what they're creating can either be good or bad. You know, the technology is neutral. It's what you decide to do with it. And so um, as opposed to being kind of fully autonomous personalities that are going to do battle, these are going to be tools that potentially bad actors might use in order to scale their behaviors and to scale kind of the um, nefarious activities that they want to do in a way that now no longer is going to be the same phishing email over and over or the same image over and over, but can actually be personalized or can be adapted depending on who they're sending something to. So the danger here, I think, is less about... Um, you know, that kind of one-on-one -on -one personality issue. It's more how will people use this in a way that either they shouldn't or in a way that's going to fool people and trick people. Because I, I maybe people don't know this. The number one most effective cybersecurity attack is a phishing. Absolutely. By far, by, more by than far. any other uh, attack. So what you're saying is, this could be even more sophisticated uh, phishing attacks because people could personalize those attacks to you directly based off of things about you, right? That you can learn off of social media that mm -hmm. maybe a Gen AI can then um, help create a uh, an email campaign that targets you directly. That's exactly right. So there's a special type of phishing that people may have heard about, which is called spear phishing. And spear phishing is exactly that. So it's where I'm, I know that I'm going to attack a particular person. Now today to attack a particular person, you'd say, okay, I have to do some research. I have to find out about them. I have to find out maybe where their kids go to school. I have to find out what their hobbies are. I have to find out what insurance company they use, whatever that piece of information might be. It's going to take some time and it's going to take some effort. But with generative AI, can I now potentially, one, find that information at scale? Because, again, generative AI might have access to all of the data of the World Wide Web in 2021, at least it does today. Um, but the second piece is, can I now generate that personalized messaging at scale? So if I can ask ChatGPT, 
to make me a personalized email for these hundred people, you know, based on their Facebook profiles or based on their, uh, you know, online accounts. Well, now instead of having one, you know, email that might be generic caught by a spam filter, instead of having one email that took me a long time to really craft for that person, I've now got a hundred or a thousand or even more specifically crafted to target individuals. And that's, that's the danger of it. All right, so so it's the scale and also the ability for my uh, junk or spam filters or phishing filters to not recognize it. Then that's exactly right because if we you know we've talked in the past about um, the ability to give a piece of text a voice, the ability to give a piece of yeah. text, you know, whether it's written as Shakespeare, whether it's written as Darren, whether it's written as you know a celebrity, whether it's written as the voice of a particular company, you know the great thing and the scary thing is that ChatGPT could actually create those emails with the voice of your bank, with the voice of your insurance company, with the voice of somebody that you know and trust. And now how effective is that spam filter going to be, which has been trained on emails that are duplicative coming in and maybe being captured by um, different apparatuses? Well, that's no longer going to apply. And so the personalization then becomes a danger where we then have to rely on people to know, is this email valid? Is this email uh, expected? Or is it something that's come in, which seems a little dodgy? Right. So they can hide the dodginess because I can, I can, most of the time I can figure out something's phishing or not. That's right. Every once in a while I go, hmm. Right. I mean, you, you look at it a couple of times. But we also see the FBI has reported this. We're also seeing another type of phishing attack, and that's virtual. What do they call it? Virtual kidnapping, mm -hmm. where they're cloning they're cloning voices. So you hear on the other line your daughter saying, "I've been kidnapped." That's right, right, and sorts sorts of things. So are we going to have to have? And that's very scary, by the way. Mm -hmm. It is. And my wife and I actually talked about that. We have certain code words now that our family uses, all right? All my kids, if if they need help, they know a certain code word they're going to tell me, and yeah. I'm going to know that it's them, right? That's something we put into place as soon as I heard these stories coming out. Are we going to have those sorts of, we're going to have to have ways of determining something is real or not, um, you know? It, it's it's going to move the conversation from real or not to truth or not. And so the, the bigger okay. issue is the truthiness of things. Because the example that you just said, yeah, it could be for kidnapping, but it could also be for news. You know, we're entering an election cycle. So it's going to be oh, about yeah, this election did cycle that person, <laughs> yeah, did that person say that thing? Did that person do that thing? Did, you know, is that a genuine genuinely attributable quote to that person. Well, not only can we make up the text of it, but we can make up a sound that sounds like that person actually saying that quote. And so the or even a video. Even video, a video. Absolutely. So it's yeah. it's going to be a question about the veracity of the information that we receive. And are people attuned well enough to go out and find out, okay, I see this in one news source or you know a source that I think is news. How many other sources do I have to see before I believe that that's the, the truth? Now, the challenge with somebody calling and saying, you know, we've kidnapped somebody or we have your loved one, 
is that you're not going to have the benefit of being able to go out and say, are there any other sources of truth to this? I think your idea about a code word is great. You might start, you know, you might hang up on that person and call your child and say, hey, you know, are you okay? You might have find my phone. You might have all of yeah, these different of tools in place. Yeah. So, so that so that brings into if we're if we're talking about cybersecurity mm-hmm. aspect of that, I can I could also use generative AI to help me combat bad actors. That's absolutely right. As well, so it's a tool that both sides have access to. It is, so, and, and and what's what's happening is you know inevitably the good guys lag behind the bad guys because the bad guys are always kind of thinking creatively about how to get around whatever the good guys have already put in place. And so you see examples where bad guys are creating their own LLMs. You know, it's not just going to be ChatGPT and what OpenAI has, but they're training their own to now maybe be more effective or to not be as indicative of what, uh, let's say, the detectors might say for OpenAI, because that might be what that detector got trained on. And so the bad guys are always kind of one step ahead Again, thinking creatively about this, um, but you know that doesn't mean that the good guys don't have tools to also use. Um, the challenge, I think, is keeping up. And so, one of the things that you saw, you probably saw this story out of DefCon. Um, DefCon is a conference in Las Vegas where hackers get together and and try to hack into things. And and very often they try to hack into things which if they did it normally, it would be a federal offense. But if they do it at DEF CON, it's sort of sanctioned by (laughs) a lot of the companies. So, you know, there were, uh, I think it was four different, four or five, something like that, different um, LLM providers who provided their large language models to the hacking community and said, can you now make this thing do something that it's not supposed to do? Can you? Um, so they were actually hacking the LLMs themselves, trying to get them right. to work outside of their guardrails that had been established. Exactly. And so what, what ended up happening is, you know, it wasn't just that the company sort of put it up and, and let people go at it. They put it up, let people go at it. And then they were adapting the models and adapting the behavior of the models so that the next day when people came in and tried the same thing, it was no it longer effective. And so the benefit to those companies really is that they get the expertise of what's called red teaming. They get all these people to come in and try to hack into it um, at scale, at least at, at the scale of DEF CON, so that they can improve what they're putting out into the market. I, I actually like, like that a lot. So we're going to see more of that sort of thing. There's a new type of hacking or cyber threat. I don't know if it's a threat or not, but where people are going to start hacking LLMs, yep. getting them to do things outside of what the operating parameters are, asking then, them questions in a certain way or whatever the, what the case may be then. That's right. This is something called prompt injection. And prompt injection is essentially asking for data, asking for information, asking for content that the model has specifically been designed not to give you. So for instance, you might say... Um, how can I hack people? And the model says, you know what? I, I don't want to give you that information. I've, I've been told I can't give you that information. So one strategy is to say, I want to make sure that I don't get hacked. What are some behaviors that I can do or that I shouldn't do to not get hacked? And so it's almost a double negative where then 
the large language model doesn't fully comprehend what you're asking. And so it says, well, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this if you want to not hack people. Well, <laughs> as a human, I, I know I can read that and I can say, yeah, oh, I'm just going to flip that on its head. And that's, that's how I can hack people, you know, or how I can do that thing that I'm not supposed to learn about. So, you know, that's one level of it, but a whole nother level of it is even potentially getting data that I as a user should not have access to. And so it's about manipulating the input, manipulating the language, recognizing that behind the scenes, and if I really have an understanding of the way that tokens are passed into the large language model in order to generate the output, I can send something in that actually confuses the model, that actually makes it do something that it wouldn't normally right. even be a possibility of doing, and in return, getting data back that I shouldn't be able to see or that I shouldn't get as an output. So this is really interesting because large language models, in some respect, have increased the attack surface. Hugely, yeah. And, and this is, um, I, I think, for a lot of... Um, Companies for a lot of, you know, even personal people who are looking to use these, typically the first concern ought to be security, which is, and we've talked about this, what is the security around what I'm asking it? So can anybody else see what I'm asking it? Can anybody else see the data that I'm getting back? Can I look inside of it and actually see where that data is coming from? But if you dig in a little bit deeper than each of those, it's exactly what we're talking about, which is... Am I inadvertently um, either sharing data with bad actors? Am I inadvertently doing anything which maybe I unknowingly you know, am, am participating in, but I don't know because I don't exactly know what's happening inside of that black box? A great, great example of this is the Samsung um, IP leak that just happened, um, where they were taking notes, engineering notes from a meeting, and they wanted them transcribed by an LLM. It did it, and then all the all the intellectual property were in those notes. Yeah. Now in the model, now you could ask the model certain questions and get those notes out. And, and that's um, the same for proprietary code. It's the same for yeah, you know any IP that a company is going to have. And and this is why you know one of the first conversations that we had was really around that spectrum of open versus private versus community, or you know yeah. even a blended approach. Because it is a security concern. If you've got people that are going to be potentially looking for help in a you know, positive, genuine way with their code, let's say, are they inadvertently sharing it with other people, which has now become a breach of your intellectual property? If you don't have a walled garden, if you don't have a sandbox that you control, then the likelihood is that, yes, yeah. that, that, that is now being leaked. Well, what's interesting is we've had no problem in the past. Mm -hmm of using things like Stack Overflow for, mm -hmm. for code development, right? Everyone, everyone uses Stack Overflow yeah. to ask questions. Oh, this piece of code isn't working. What do I do? I cut and paste that code and I'm smart enough to know not to put like my credentials in the code. That's so right. I replace those with, with a bunch of X's, but I don't think people realize that they're leaking intellectual property by doing that. Well, I think taking from Stack Overflow, putting it into your own code, typically well, you tend to be pretty safe. I think the challenge comes with- No, but if, when I push my code up to Stack Overflow right. and say, can someone help me debug this? That's right. 
That's exactly right. Well, and that, you know, a lot of that's what happened with, let's say, GitHub Copilot. So if GitHub Copilot is now scraping all of the GitHub repositories for code examples, now <laughs> the, the nice thing is that now if I need help with coding, I've got access to all that sort of brain Yeah, all the, all the great knowledge of, yeah. But if I've inadvertently shared my keys, do I trust GitHub enough to scrape out any API keys, to scrape out any... Um, I can tell you I, from personal experience, because um, I've accidentally checked keys into GitHub, mm -hmm. they get flagged immediately. Yep. I, I like, all right, that, that's pretty good. I completely gork that, you know, completely you. botched it. That's right. And so, um, you know, they as a, as a partner are, you know, might be seen as trustworthy. Um, right. and, and I think that's part of the due diligence that people really need to think about before they start to leverage some of these tools with their proprietary information is what's my level of trust? Again, coming back to trust, uh, trust yeah. and truthiness, what's my level of trust in the provider of this service? Am I certain that when they say I've got my own instance on Azure, GCP or AWS, how, how do they show that to me? You know, they could say that, but are they actually dumping everything into the same pool or do I genuinely have my own instance and what I do in my instance is not shared with any other instance? There's that due diligence that people need to do to make sure that's how it's happening. Well, and it can be a lot more insidious than we know because more companies are adding tools that use generative AI on the back end yeah. um, without us even knowing that there's generative AI or maybe that our data is being shared. So I, right. I mean, we're probably going to see it in the office suite in 365. I'm guessing next year. I, yeah. That's a total guess. By the way, Darren's not predicting anything. I'm just, I'm just saying things are moving so quick mm -hmm. that I could see a lot more of our tools have Hey, can you improve this uh, email? Yeah, well, yeah, I can improve that email. Click improve. And all of a sudden, our intellectual property is now in a generative AI somewhere. That's right. And we didn't even know it went. We didn't even know it went there because we didn't think improve, improve my email. Of course, I want to improve my email, right? And, and this is where, you know, people see NVIDIA release their earnings today, I think, as we're recording oh, this. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. they're doing very well. And, and I think part of that and part of that positive outlook for GPU compute, part of that outlook for um, storage, part of that outlook for kind of compute in general is that people eventually are going to want to move away from the purely open environment and they're going to want to set up their own because yeah. of the security needs. Now, when they do that, they're going to have to take into account the energy needs, the compute needs, the storage needs, all of these other things that they're no longer piggybacking on the open models about. But if they want to do it in a way that keeps that more secure, advantage secure, they're probably going to want to set up something on their own. Which which makes uh, perfect sense, which is almost contrary to the big shift that we saw moving to the cloud. That's right. Well, right, because, unless people set it up in the cloud, right? So well, they, they could, but, but the idea is that in the cloud, I'm using um, general resources that everyone else can use. And I think, I think a lot of people thought, well, a generative AI that the whole world can use is, yeah. is awesome, right? Because I have all the world's stuff there. And then people are like, oh, data. Yeah. 
all, all of a sudden. And we had the same problem in the cloud, by the way. People are putting all their stuff up in the cloud, not securing their S3 buckets. And then all of a sudden, oh, my data is exposed. That's right. The, right. the one thing that I will say, which I think is a benefit for the cloud, you know, I think one of the best cloud use cases is when you have to burst temporarily. You know, yeah. this is why yeah. AWS set up the cloud, uh, you know, their uh, AWS. Originally, that was it. Yeah. That's why Amazon set it up, because around the holidays, they had to burst. Well, for a company that might say, you know what? We're going to train our own LLM, which is not something that most people are either going to need to do or maybe want to do. But let's say you want to do that. The question then becomes, do I buy the infrastructure to do that, which I'm going to use once, and then I'm going to spin most of that down and run it kind of at a lower capacity? Or do I use something on the cloud where I can then do that training, get the model down, and then put it, maybe I'm going to run it on-prem, maybe I'm going to run it in a right, way I that- run all my inference on-prem, but all the okay. training I did up in the cloud. Yeah, I could see, I could see that as, exactly. as a good operating model. But, but those are some of, I think, the other considerations that people are going to want to take into account. Where is that training being done? How many times, you know, how often am I going to need to train it? If I'm going to need to train it continuously, if I'm going to be taking that input, if I'm going to be reinforcing it, then I probably don't want to put it in the cloud because my cloud bill is going to be ginormous. Yeah, because of the egress costs, right? Well, the, the egress data, costs. The data movement. And, and the size of that compute is just going to be gigantic. Okay. And to have that running constantly, you know, just it's, doesn't just, it's not sense. sustainable. Exactly. So, hey, the killer app that all that companies like Dell and HPE and in well Intel, I, Intel we 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 provide chips for in the cloud and on prem. Yep. But that killer app that's going to consume as many resources as we can possibly throw out, it's going to be LLMs. It sounds like. Yep. Yes and no, and I think you know we've talked a little bit about kind of the future future um, as well, and I think one of the trends that we're going to see more of is that the LLMs that live on the edge, the LLMs that might be doing a lot of the day-to-day -day heavy lifting. I just saw an article that was about um, Wegmans and, you know, will I go and have a conversational UI at the grocery store? So whether that's Kroger or Albertson, you know, whatever your local grocery yeah. store chain is, will I go and be able to have a conversation while I'm checking out my own goods? Well, that'd, be, that'd be nice for people that are lonely. Go to the grocery store great. and talk to them. AI. Yeah. Right. But the LLM behind that, doesn't need to be huge. It doesn't need to contain multitudes. It doesn't need to be computationally intensive. And so I think what we're going to see is that the big models that have everything are going to be few. I think the models will become more specialized and I think they're going to become smaller. So you're not going to need the size of compute to run, you know, whether it's Llama 2, whether it's um, OpenAI's LLM, right. you know, whatever it is. Most people probably aren't going to need that in a business context. You're going to want that constraint. You're going to want a little bit more control, and that's going to equate with size is going to be smaller. Well, that, that's good, right? Because um, a, a smaller model is easier to secure, mm -hmm. right? I, I, I could put tighter guardrails on it. So there's, there's lots of great things around it. All right, let's shift a little bit to yeah. um, back on security. Yeah. Um, specifically, how what sorts of things can I use a large language model or other AI techniques to help me secure and fight off the cyber bad actors? Because I yeah. think that that's where we really want to get to is how can I how can I leverage these these new tools to help me? 
So I think where most people are going to use them is probably with partners. So most companies are probably not, in my opinion, going to set up their own infrastructure to fight off the bad actors, but they're going to find a partner who does this, who's leveraging some of these tools to do it for them. Now, where is that going to fit in? Certainly, it's going to fill, uh, fit in that kind of email spam gap that we were talking yeah, about. Yeah. And, and I think that's going to become more complex as the state of the art gets more complex around phishing. Um, certainly, we're going to see things around network security and kind of the behavior of how people use their machines. You know, a lot of the um, kind of what we've been talking about is in sort of the creative piece of it, but a lot of it is how, how is that data being synthesized across a lot of different devices and a lot of different uses? I think some of these models are going to be used around um, kind of personal device security, but also network security uh, as so well. So they're, they're going to look for anomalies and patterns and, and things like that, right? That's right. Darren always logs on between five and six in the morning. What if he's there at 2 a.m. in the morning? Hmm. Well, it could be, and it could be a, right. you know, maybe the generative piece is that it then pings Darren and says, hey, Darren, I noticed you're not, uh, you, you know, using your normal hours. You logged on pretty late. Is everything okay? Part of it might also oh, be yeah. that check-in, which is now that human component. So instead of having a human man, you know, be the person <laughs> at a 24-hour sock or knock, you've now got a generative AI that's behind the scenes. That's kind of asking. That I kind of like that, right? Because exactly. it can automate it's going to sound weird, but they can automate the the reach out to the person. They can That's automate right. the human validation uh, that before, at, you know, and they can yep. do it in an intelligent way. So I'm not always getting a call at two in the morning saying, hey, is that really you? That's right. And, you know, right now, a lot of times, um, most services, you'll get that email that says, hey, we noticed a, a login from an yeah. unexpected location. This can now probably tie into, okay, where is Darren's um, cell phone? You know, are we tracking what Wi-Fi? Uh, oh, Jeffrey, you're, you're creating Big Brother and Terminator and Skynet all at the same time. I, you know, I'm, I'm probably late to the party in doing that. I think a lot <laughs> of this is already part of the advanced security, you know, understanding of where people are, where their devices are, especially if it's a company-owned device. Right. Um, and making sure that people are who they say they are. Well, and, and and we have that concept, right? With multi-factor authentication. That's right. Right? Um, you know, if if I log in, it says, hey, check your phone. Boom, boom, boom. Yep. And then they even have it where it'll turn the Bluetooth on and say, oh, we detected your phone here. Validate through your Bluetooth on your phone. I, yeah. I see that. Yeah. Um, so, um, but a Gen AI in the middle of that could actually, actually make it more personable and maybe smarter. Um yeah. Well, and, and also, you know, there's some services already today that look at the cadence that you type with, for instance. So as you're keystroking and you're typing, you know, you've got a particular speed that you type with and kind of an order that you hit the right. key different than how I hit the keys. Well, it won't be too long until all of these different signals are going to be feeding in to determine, hey, is this actually this person, um, you know, that we think it ought to be? So multi-factor is going to extend beyond just, hey, I got a code on my phone, but it's now going to be, am I typing with the right cadence? You know, am I speaking maybe in the right way? If I give a call, right. is it the voice that I expect to hear on the other end? All of those things. Well, that, that's another thing we've talked about before. We've got text to voice and now voice to text. That's right. But it's not just to text. It's voice to 
it's going to analyze my voice. Mm-hmm. Do I talk in the same cadence? Do I? It's very sophisticated. The 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 voice cloning. Mm-hmm. It's, I've mentioned on the show before, but I've I now cloned my voice so I can broadcast in multiple languages on my Embracing Digital This Week podcast, which yeah. is a newscast. Um, and it does an incredible job with intonation and my cadence. I can tell the difference, but some of my coworkers would. They they said, Darren, your German's impeccable. <laughs> go, oh yeah, well, why thank you. And then the question's gonna be, will you do that with my voice also? So, you know, if you translate this conversation into German, is that gonna be my voice in German? And will the tools know the difference between when you're talking and when I'm talking as opposed to merging us together? So I have not tried that yet, Jeffrey. Okay. But maybe that's something we could try with your permission. I would get a 30 second clip and we'll translate this episode into German. And can it handle? um, Well, I already know what I want to try and do. And that is I'll translate mine and then translate yours. But there's pauses between our talking. And can we mesh the two together? To me, that would be, oh man, it, it would be incredible because. I, it would expose um, our podcast to more uh, bigger audience, but at the same time, super scary. Yeah. Well, we'll need a safe word if we're going to do that. So yeah, we need we'll, a safe we'll need, word. We'll need a code word if we're going to do that. <laughs> yeah, we we absolutely will need a code word to do that. Well, Jeffrey, it's been wonderful as always having you on the show. Right. We're going to have you back um, where where we are going to talk about some of the limitations that we see okay. today. And um, and where we see the future going in AI, not just generative AI. I to to me, I had this conversation with someone, uh, and I said, I generative AI just made AI more accessible. Yeah, I, I think mm-hmm. I think it made it more accessible, and it also made it more um, interoperable with people's Which, daily lives. And, and because yeah. people are used to talking and you're used to having a conversation, people could start to see where it fits in. Okay. I can make images. I can make voice. I can do, you know, it can help me with my email, which I'm doing a lot of. It just, it touched on so many things that people were already maybe struggling with the time investment for Yeah, that it, it sparked a lot of imagination. And, and you know, It'll but, be interesting to see if that dies down or if that, you know, in, in two years, we're still talking about all the amazing things you can do with it. Um, I, I think we're going to be still talking about it, but I want people to understand there's a whole lot more out there in the AI world right. than just generative AI. Uh, some really incredible um, techniques and opportunities for growth as a, as a, um, as industries and also as a society. I think there's going to be lots of really cool things coming our way. Um, and uh, I'm excited about this. This is exciting stuff. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, maybe the other thing that we can talk about next time is is the digital literacies that people need in order to work with some of these different AIs. So, yes, they're there. Yes, they exist. But back to the truth question, the trust question, how can we make sure that people are still um, judging that reality as opposed to just taking it for granted? I, I think that I think that's an important thing. It sounds like a, a three, at least three more episodes. At if least. you want, you, you let me know. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jeffrey. All right. Thank you, Darren. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.com 
www.thepodcastnetwork.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.